Hello everybody, it's Martin Kiernan here and this is a special episode of Infection Control Matters this week because it's World Antimicrobial Awareness Week. Uh, and in the UK we've released a report called the S-Power Report that I'll get somebody to explain in a moment. Um, and with me I'm delighted to say I've got five members of the team who actually wrote the report, so who better to talk about it. So I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves and then we'll have a bit of a discussion about the various chapters in the report. So Diane, do you want to go first? Thank you, Martin. Thank you for hosting us. My name is Diane Ashirodokwe. I'm the lead pharmacist for antimicrobial resistance at the UK Health Security Agency. I'm also the chair of the SBAR Oversight Group, and SBAR stands for the English Surveillance Programme for Antimicrobial Utilisation and Resistance. Thanks very much. Mariam, do you want to go next? Hi, um, I'm Mariam Fenderewski. I'm a microbiology consultant um, and infectious disease consultant. And I spent my time between the NHS, where I work as a microbiology consultant, and the other time I work for UKHSA on healthcare associated infections and AMR. And I'm the clinical lead of the AMR chapter. Thank you very much. Kieran, tell us about you. Hello, Martin, and thank you for inviting me to the podcast. My name is Kieran Hand. And I am the National Clinical Lead for Pharmacy and Prescribing in the AMR programme in NHS England. So I lead the chapter on um, NHS England Improvement and Assurance Schemes. Thanks very much. Sarah, over to you. Thanks, Martin. Thanks for inviting me to take part. Uh, my name is Sarah Gerber. I am currently the head of the Healthcare Associated Infections um, section at UKHSA, but for the pre for the past two years, including the time period that this report was produced in, I was the head of the antimicrobial resistance and prescribing section here at UKHSA. Thank you very much, Sarah. And Julie, last but not least. Uh, thank you. Hello, I'm Julie Robotham. So I'm the head of the mathematical modelling and evaluations team for healthcare associated infections and antimicrobial re um, resistance at UKHSA. And I'm also the research lead for AMR at UKHSA and lead on the research chapter within the report. And as well as that, I lead for knowledge mobilisation, trying to make sure that that research reaches the right people. Thank you very much. Right, Diane, we'll start with you then. What is the S-Power Report? You've told us what it stands for, but what's the content? Who's involved with it? What are the key messages? Thank you, Martin. So, the, as I said, the S-Power Report is the English Surveillance Programme for Antimicrobial Utilisation and Resistance Report, and it is produced annually. The report includes national data on antimicrobial prescribing and resistance, as well as antimicrobial stewardship implementation and awareness activities. We also report in within that the um, any incentives from the NHS um, and uh, Dr. Hand, Kieran Hand will talk about that. Um, each year for the last um, nine years, we have launched the report during World Antimicrobial Awareness Week or just ahead of it. And the report has content that is streamlined for antimicrobial resistance data, antimicrobial stewardship information, antimicrobial prescribing or consumption. Um, the NHS England and Improvement Chapter, which includes the Improvement and Assurance Schemes, Professional and Public Education Engagement and Training, quite a mouthful. And this year, for the first time, we have the COVID Therapeutics Chapter, but for previous years, we'll always have a research and a stakeholder engagement chapter as well. As I mentioned, the COVID Therapeutics Chapter is new for this year, and we also have data um, for the first time this year, having more focus on it this year, on factors commonly known to be associated with health inequalities, as well as our contributions towards the National Action Plan. With the report, it's um, 
produced as part of the oversight group, which includes more than 22 national organizations, as well as all the devolved administrations. And the, the report itself is produced by so many colleagues. So with it, on this call, you only have a few of us, but there are um, other chapter leads that um, haven't joined us today to try and streamline how many people we have on the panel. But overall, we have more than 100 people who contribute to the report annually, and we're really grateful for their support. Oh, I tend amazing. to lead on the stewardship chapter in addition to chairing the okay. website group and producing it. Thanks very much. I mean, there's a lot of content here, and we want people to have a really good look at it. But really, I'd like you all to just pick out one top point or key message from the chapters, really, if, you know, because there's several important points. But due to time, could I ask you to pick one key thing. So, Sarah, can we start with you looking at the COVID therapeutics? Sure. Um, I've actually got COVID therapeutics and I'm also here representing the antimicrobial usage chapter. So if you okay. don't mind, I'll start with the usage and Absolutely. move on to the therapeutics. Um, so um, the biggest point, as you mentioned, there's so many interesting things in this report. So I'd really encourage people to go and read the report um, that's published in World Antimicrobial Awareness Week and also to attend the webinar that is being hosted on the 23rd of November. Um, so, yeah, just a summary of a couple of things. So for the users chapter, the biggest point in England is that total consumption, which we measure um, as the number of defined daily doses per 1,000 inhabitants per day, has been decreasing since 2017. Now, there was about a 4% decrease between 2017 and 2019. And then there was a nearly 11% decrease, which we observed between 2019 and 2020 alone. So that obviously coincided with the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. And there's been a somewhat of a stabilisation between 2020 and 2021, with only a 0.5% decline in the most recent year. And that large decrease between 19 and 20 really highlights the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on antimicrobial consumption. But the most recent data in 21 suggests that that decline might not be a sustained change. Mm. Um, so moving on to therapeutics, we did say we'd try and keep it brief for each chapter. <laughs> so for the, for the first time, as Diane mentioned, we have information on the UKHSA surveillance programme that looks at the directly acting antiviral agents, which includes complex biologicals such as neutralising monoclonal antibodies for COVID-19. Now, these were rolled out mostly in England in 2021, and a new surveillance programme at UKHSA was commissioned by the Department of Health and Social Care, and it encompasses genomic, biological and epidemiological surveillance. And this chapter mostly focuses on the usage data. There's a little bit on resistance as well, but we have some technical briefings on that that come out really regularly. And the data that we are covering in this chapter is just from the 1st of October 21 to the 31st of March 2022. And in that time, we had more than 51,000 patients who had treatment requests onto a system called Bluetech, which is essentially a, a pre-approval system used in the NHS for high-cost treatments. Also worth mentioning that in this time period, there were 11 mutations in amino acid residues which were identified and they may help the virus evade the treatments. However, mm. somewhat reassuringly, as of the end of March 22, none of these mutations were present at a prevalence of more than 0.5% in the complete UK genomic database for COVID-19. Also, they were not increasing in frequency and there was no evidence of any transmission events in the genomic database either. 
as Diane mentioned, one of the key features of this year's ESPAR report is that we've included stratifications of data by ethnic group and index of multiple deprivation to start work on identifying whether we have any health inequities in antimicrobial resistance and prescribing. And one of the chapters that we have this data available for is the COVID novel therapeutics. So we are making progress, definitely. And we have noticed some discrepancies in what treatment requests and sort of the setting of those treatment requests by ethnic group. However, it's, it's really worth noting that while we are making steps forward in the right direction, particularly in this chapter, it's really hard to contextualise our findings because we do not yet have the correct denominators or the most appropriate denominators to be able to really assess whether we are seeing health inequities between these different groups. And we, we don't yet have information on those patients that were eligible for the COVID-19 therapeutics. So we're having to use kind of proxy um, denominators, which means it's just hard to kind of interpret those results. So we're we're making progress, but we're not quite there yet. And that'll I'll be fascinating to see where that goes. Else. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Thank you very much. Okay, Marion, we're going to go on to you now, looking at antimicrobial resistance. Yes, um, uh, quite difficult to to summarise briefly, but I think just as a, an orientation, the AMR chapter is um, like the consumption chapter, probably one of the largest chapters in the report, and it's split up into bacterial and viruses and fungal and parasites, and it's also a really good place to start to point out all the different resources and reports that are available that UKHSA um, uh, report on on a yearly basis. But if we think about antimicrobial resistance according to bacteria uh, and we think about the burden of resistance and that's an estimate according to resistant bloodstream infections the burden of resistance has decreased by 4.2 percent from 2017 and similarly if we think about severe resistant infections that has decreased as well from a baseline of 2018 at 9.1%. So actually we are on trajectory to meet the National Action Plan ambition of a 10% reduction in severe antibiotic resistance by 2025. I do, however, have to add in a caveat and it's about the COVID pandemic. And the COVID pandemic really had a profound effect on infections across the board. It reduced infections, viral and bacterial infections, it reduced consumption. And so we have to see whether the drop in resistance will be maintained as we yeah. come out of um, the pandemic and whether we'll be able to maintain the momentum that, that we're seeing. I think also in terms of AMR, it's quite a nebulous concept. And certainly for the listeners out there, what do we mean by AMR? Well, where's the bulk of it? The bulk mm. of it is by far in the class of this family called Enterobacterales, and that's the gram-negative infections, really common infections that cause urinary infections, appendicitis, pancreatitis, gallbladder infections. And within that group, E. coli is by far the commonest uh, and the bacteria with the, the highest burden of resistance mm. and i'll stop there okay i mean it'd be nice to think that that fall would be sustained but as you say the covid pandemic could throw absolutely everything up in the air julie can we move on to you now looking at research and stakeholder chapter please yes absolutely my pleasure um so there's an awful lot of research described in the research chapter but i think what i would hope that readers would get from it is an understanding of the enormous kind of scope and breadth of the different research that's conducted in the field of AMR and also the the large number of kind of methodologies used 
so in the chapter, we outline exemplar kind of research projects from across the board, across that full scope and go into them in some degree of detail. I'll just touch on kind of a couple of areas now. So one of the main research priorities that is addressed is um, improving surveillance and data and making the most of these data. I'd say that's a focus is using kind of sophisticated methods to optimize the use of this multitude of data sources that we have available to us and with the you know whole genome sequence data and things like that. So there's all sorts mm -hmm. of exciting projects um, described there to get better public health insight from those data. And they cover all sorts of different areas. So better understanding of both the development of resistance and how resistance spreads, uh, the burden um, of resistance, both in terms of health and cost. There's projects around um, development and evaluation of novel diagnostics and treatments um, and design and also evaluation of existing uh, strategies that we have at our disposal. So lots around evaluation of infection prevention and control strategies and design and evaluation of antimicrobial stewardship strategies. Um, as I said, so this covers all sorts of different methods um, and specialties. So microbiology, epidemiology, bioinformatics, there's mathematical modeling in there, lots of behavioral science, all sorts to delve into whatever kind of is your is your topic area of interest. But I would say what what ties everything together across the whole research chapter, whether it's a a detailed laboratory study of a particular resistant plasmid or whether it's uh, a qualitative behavioral piece of work around looking at the drivers and facilitators of implementing stewardship in in a hospital is that it's all all this research is to generate evidence to enable us to better tackle um, antimicrobial resistance and so a key part within the research chapter this year is uh, looking at knowledge mobilization and how we make sure that whole breadth um, of research uh, reaches the right people. And then moving on to the kind of stakeholder engagements uh, chapter, uh, I think it's similar really. So similar to the research chapter, what it really demonstrates is the, the breadth of work and the engagement with all sorts of different stakeholders that, in the work that SBOWER does via the SBOWER Oversight Group. So as Diane mentioned at the beginning, the Oversight Group comprises all sorts of different stakeholders. So all the devolved administrations, professional and educational bodies, healthcare providers and regulators. Um, I think what might be particularly notable um, this year is alongside all of the huge amount of work that's uh, described around what NHS England are doing and NICE, the National Institute of Health and Care Excellence is doing, there's a really strong representation from areas such as dentistry. So the British Dental Association and the College of General Dentistry. And actually, SBOWER has a dedicated uh, subgroup um, to look to focus on um, antimicrobial, antimicrobial stewardship in dentistry and again the COVID pandemic pops up there and how to kind of address the, the issues in dentistry around stewardship during the pandemic and beyond and similarly the stakeholders 
go beyond human health. So there's a, obviously a clear need um, to work across the One Health agenda. And so there's uh, representation and work with the Veterinary Medicines Directorate and DEFRA, the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. So it really is broad and far ranging and far more than I could possibly go into now. <laughs> but I would really urge people to go and take a look because you can pick and choose. Yeah, I was going to say, you're all doing an excellent job of selling your respective tra- chapters to potential readers. So, yeah. so no pressure on you, Kieran, as you tell us about NHS incentives. Thanks, Martin. Well, you will be aware that the UK, like many countries, has a national action plan for antimicrobial resistance. And our current national action plan runs from 2019 to 2024. And within that national action plan are two very challenging targets um, to reduce avoidable antimicrobial consumption in in human patients, one for primary care and one for secondary care. Now, within the improvement and insurance chapter, you'll find that uh, we describe performance of both acute hospital trusts for secondary care data and primary care networks and integrated care systems in terms of prescribing in, in primary care in the community. But I'm not going to give you those spoilers I'm going to encourage everyone to read the chapter. So instead, the performance of hospitals and the performance of primary care networks and integrated care systems is reported. Um, but I'm the, the area I'm going to focus on is community pharmacy. So in England, there are 11,500 roughly community pharmacies. And we introduced an incentive scheme to encourage community pharmacists and their teams of staff to um, have a a consultation with patients who present a prescription for for an antibiotic to talk to them about their understanding of the treatment, their illness, mm-hmm. their expectations, and how to take the antibiotics um, wisely. Now, this is a great example of a fantastic collaboration because the supporting materials were developed by colleagues in UKHSA in the Primary Care Interventions Unit, um, Donna Lecky and colleagues, and very well supported by Diane. Diane. Um, and my colleagues in NHS England in the pharmacy primary care team um, worked closely with Diane and Donna to produce a fantastic um, policy incentive. And over 70% of community pharmacists uh, signed up to the incentive scheme and a quarter of a million prescriptions uh, were the subject of counselling between pharmacy teams and patients and community pharmacy. So I'm hopeful that that will have improved the understanding and knowledge of, of many patients who, who receive antibiotic prescriptions. And we're hoping to build on that uh, next uh, in the current coming year with a, with a new incentive for community pharmacy teams to respond to symptoms of infection. But I'm, I'll park it there. OK, well, thanks very much. I mean, you mentioned trusts, and I need to say for a global audience that an NHS trust in England is in fact an, uh, a, a provider organisation which could be a, a large acute general hospital or other groups of hospitals who come together to form one organisation called an NHS trust. And there are targets for reduction. So given the current financial situation, which is global, and the pressures because we're approaching winter here in the UK, how easy or how difficult will it be for organisations to actually achieve their targets, do you think, of a 10% reduction? I'm still not going to give a, a spoiler on the, on the content of the <laughs> I was chapter. I trying to but draw you out there. Yeah. Um, certainly, well, certainly 100% of, of hospitals have not achieved the, um, the target that was, in the, um, that was set in, in the year for the ESPAR report. But we have amended the target to align the target to the National Action Plan more accurately And the National Action Plan calls for that 10% reduction in prescribing of antimicrobials from the the groups um, described by the WHO as WATCH, 
and reserve. So these are critically important antibiotics that should not be used um, first line that should be held in reserve for patients who really need them and are often active against the more resistant organisms. So that by aligning the target um, within the improvement and assurance scheme to the national action plan, it does allow hospitals some flexibility to, to use more antibiotics from the narrow spectrum groups, from the access groups that can have the, an unintended consequence of, of increasing the, the number of doses that are prescribed and administered to patients. So it appears as if a hospital might be using more antibiotics, but um, it, from a resistance perspective, it's, a, it's better that um, a patient is exposed to narrow spectrum antibiotics than broad spectrum antibiotics. So we, mm-hmm. we deliberately incentivized a reduction of the drugs in those uh, watch and, and reserve groups. And surprisingly, some hospitals have managed to do both. They, they both reduce their um, total consumption of antimicrobials and they reduce consumption of the broader spectrum drugs in the watch and reserve um, classifications. So it, it is possible um, it's certainly challenging, but the message we're, we've been sharing with, with hospitals recently is a focus on intravenous to oral switch that we recognize that if, um, if intravenous to oral switch happens promptly, as soon as a patient has met criteria for intravenous to oral switch, then the, the duration of, of the intravenous treatment can be shortened by a day, sometimes two days, and that shortens the overall duration of treatment by a day or two days, which can mm. um, reduce the consumption of antimicrobials in a hospital by 20 to 30%. Yeah. Um, not, not least, it has a no- number of other advantages, including releasing nursing time to care for patients. We've estimated that um, even shortening an intravenous course by one dose can release 1.7 million hours of nursing yeah. time in England. Yeah, and um, that doesn't get factored in often, doesn't it? But you're right, absolutely right. I mean, Mariam, from a frontline, because you work in two settings, but you're a frontline clinician as well. What, do you, what are your feelings on this area? I mean, if we go back to, to last year's target, I agree completely with, with Kieran about moving away from a 2% overall reduction because what it did was penalise trusts who use multiple narrow agent spectrums for empirical and then you almost felt forced to move to giving one overall broad spectrum. So that that's correct. The 10% reduction in watch and reserve is going to be very challenging. I mean, that's in, in terms of the restrict category of antimicrobials, almost certainly they are all given in line with infection teams you're, you're treating, you're giving those to treat the most resistant types of infections. So then a 10% uh, reduction in the watch, it will be challenging. It, it really depends on where the trusts are coming from in, the, in their baseline. And we know that infection and AMS capacity within trusts is not equal in, in the UK. Uh, if you if you come from a large university trust, you have very large infection teams and um, with a lot of resources um, and they can do a lot of education. They can go out there onto the wards and, and do lots of AMS ward runs. And similarly, it, you know, if you're a smaller hospital and there's only two or three of you, that's that's going to be really challenging. And we've seen that in the COVID pandemic. We've seen unequal balance in terms of the impact on, on, on stewardship and, and secondary care. Some organisations where they have very large teams with minimal impact in terms of their stewardship activities. And, and if there was an impact, they were able to bounce back very quickly. And some still haven't really got back into into the swing of things in terms of AMS. So 
Let's see. I think it will be challenging. But I, I think, Kieran, what you'll find is the same hospitals who achieve the 2% will be the same hospitals that achieve the 10%. Um, so it's how do we bring everybody up? How do we facilitate and improve stewardship for everybody in, in secondary care? Kieran, did you want to say something about that? Yeah, just a couple of points in response. And, and firstly, thank you to Mariam, who's recently tipped me off about research from the United States that demonstrated that course length and duration of treatment in hospitals in the United States, there's quite a lot of variation in the prescribing of antibiotics at discharge, at the point of discharge. And often antibiotics supplied at discharge are extend a course on unnecessarily and that there's a fabulous opportunity for improvement there, which would not jeopardize patient safety and, and could reduce the consumption of antibiotics in hospitals considerably. Um, so thank you to Mariam for that suggestion. And that's something we'll consider for policy. But secondly, just to say that I, I fully hear and understand what Mariam is saying about the resources available for stewardship. And we've taken that very seriously. And this year have carried out a an extensive workforce survey in collaboration with colleagues from infection prevention control. So we've, we're finally in a position where we've got really detailed information about how many people of, of what um, disciplines and how many hours do they have available to work on specifically on stewardship tasks um, in a given week. And, and we're, we're now starting to explore variation around the country and we'll be sharing that data and encouraging um, organizations to look at their own data and understand maybe why are they not investing in stewardship and, yeah. and equally in infection prevention and control. Yeah, good point. Uh, Diane, you wanted to make a comment, I think, and we'll come back to Mariam after that as well. Um, okay, what I was going to say is that obviously with, with a lot of these, um, it's important that we have the right tools available. And so what we can um, say is that there are continued activities and and commitment from both NHS England and Improvement and UKHSA to, to develop tools to support colleagues in their activities so that we reduce um, the reinvention of the wheel, hopefully. So if we can develop national tools that are agreed, and I'll talk about some of that and when we come to the stewardship chapter information, I'll pass back to Mariam, thank you. Oh yeah, it's just, it, just a couple of points really. I think, you know, this isn't just about leadership from within the stewardship team or capacity it's really about bringing everybody along and and certainly you know trying to get buy-in from the executive board and the chief executive so that is so important you know, how are they helping and enabling the stewardship teams and then you know diane's talking about tools absolutely we need to provide effective quick tools to allow prescribers on the ground to make decisions it just starts smart you know, for example starting the right antibiotic at the right time picking mm. the right agent and the right dose but what is becoming so important now is is duration and the shortest effective therapy and we think about duration that really needs in hospital care for example primary care you've, you've got several ways to restrict antimicrobials in the community you can either not give a script um, give a lot of help self-help advice or you can give a delayed script that doesn't work in secondary care you've got sick people coming in you need to give antibiotics so the only way that you can actually decrease antimicrobials is actually at the review stage let's look at what's happening at 48 72 hour, two hours do they have an infection actually was up all heart failure what have um the x-rays and the bloods and, and the cultures shown and i feel really strongly that we need to facilitate and help that 48 72 hour review and as so many trusts move across to electronic prescribing we need and <laughs> we need systems that are fit for purpose mm. um and um unfortunately 
I was very hopeful that technology was going to be an enabler and in many circumstances it is a disabler and that's something I feel very very strongly about that we really need to get electronic systems that can support prescribing modules and that's um, a great hope. I'm, I'm looking to Kieran there to, to drive that forward on a national <laughs> agenda. But for me as a frontline clinician, that's absolutely the key. And that would absolutely help me to bring in um, proper prescribing modules so that the doctors on the ground can do it so that I'm not, I don't need to be there all the time forcing them to do it. Okay, Kieran, do you want to quickly comment before we go to Diane to talk about her chapters? Sure. Um, in response to, to Mariam's really important point, so Firstly, to say, I think it's really timely that the ARC Hospital study has been published um, very recently, which is a, a study re that recruited a number of hospitals in the UK and looked at this concept of encouraging review of prescriptions at between two and three days after they've started, considering all of those factors that Mariam has described and making a conscious decision about whether to continue antibiotics, whether to change, de-escalate, switch to oral, um, put a stop date, all of that. And and the ARC study did conclude that it was possible to, to safely reduce consumption of antimicrobials in hospitals by encouraging this review at day two to three. But something that was buried within the study, which I find very interesting, is that technology such as electronic prescribing systems could be used to introduce a what we call a a hard stop which is where a, pres a prescription is fixed for three days and if it's not deliberately renewed by a prescriber then it it stops it's a hard stop and in the organizations that deployed that um, approach mortality was actually reduced and now that wasn't uh, statistically powered of course so it, it may have been a, a chance finding but it was reassuring that there was no negative sign in mortality in terms of for using the hard stop and and so in terms of e-prescribing and electronic digital systems in general we we very much are aware of the importance of getting this right and having systems that are fit for purpose so we we've just embarked upon a, a process of evaluating the existing systems and we'll be interviewing and carrying out focus groups with frontline clinicians who use these digital systems both in primary care and in secondary care asking them what's working what's not working how could they be improved and then going back to the system providers with a roadmap for how we see the ideal system working for stewardship in the future okay julie's got enthused about this one as well now we're keeping time waiting because you're also passionate about the subject come on julie I'll I'll keep it brief. It was just a very quick comment about um, cost effectiveness. Um, so all of these strategies, obviously, the question that often pops up is which is the most cost effective for which setting. And coming back to what Mariam was talking about, you know, understanding the differences between hospitals and which strategy is optimal in which it might vary between them definitely and certainly the cost effectiveness will vary it really depends on kind of where they're coming from and where you're kind of aiming to go to so there's various research studies and health economics underway to better understand that and to try and get a handle on the cost effectiveness of all of these different approaches um Again, I would urge people to look at the research chapter to, <laughs> to see more about it. Who's not going to not stop plugging? Are you? Okay, Diane, it's your chance now. At last, tell us about your chapters. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I'm going to talk about two chapters. One, um, which is the antimicrobial stewardship chapter, which I lead with Ella Casali, and also the professional and public education, engagement and training chapter, which is led by Dr. Donna Leckie and Catherine Hayes. And I'm going to actually report both of them together. So within those two chapters, across the two chapters, we report on the development and progress 
of the key national primary and secondary care antimicrobial stewardship interventions and tools um, that UKHSA lead on, as well as our work to embed systematic approach to reducing health inequalities in antimicrobial resistance. Um, so a key part for has been the redesign and implementation of the target toolkit um, and as, as Kieran highlighted earlier, the collaboration to um, support the implementation of the antibiotic checklist in community pharmacy. And that's been really important to help support our community pharmacy colleagues as they um, move further in their journey with antimicrobial stewardship. And it's been really great to see so many, um, you know, three quarters of more than three quarters of the pharmacies, community pharmacies in England participate in that. And to say that, not in the report, but Wales have done similar as well, um, which has been really good to see. We also um, developed a how-to guides for primary care teams to be able to review um, dose and duration of long-term and repeat antimicrobial prescriptions. And then for secondary care, again, really important I talk about, we talked earlier about the importance of tools to support colleagues, particularly around duration and the review part of Start Smart Then Focus. And so we've developed a, 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 an antimicrobial intravenous to oral switch criteria, a national one, and it's UK-wide across the four countries, as well as a decision aid. And it was developed from local policies, published literature and expert opinion. So we're really great. We had more than 270 colleagues across the UK participate mm. in that. The e-bug resources, which is for children and school children, was redesigned. And then there was a national rollout to all schools within England. We're really proud of that and, and grateful again to that collaboration with NHS England. And that continues to support schools and communities to reinvigorate key infection prevention and control and antimicrobial resistance messages. Um, and then the engagement with Antibiotic Guardian campaign continued at high levels, particularly driven by community pharmacy. Um, and from the initiation in 2014 to 2021, um, there are more than 144,000 pledges chosen by individuals on the main page. We have other pages for um, other with other collaborations with Africa CDC, WHO Europe, um, as well as South Africa, which we haven't reported in this one. This was on the main English page. And also great to see 94 organisations register their stewardship activities on the website. And some of mm -hmm. those actually were from international organisations. There are a couple of surveys that we report on, and I'm not going, I'm going to be like Kieran and not spoil them. And I encourage <laughs> oh, yes. you Always leave them wanting them. more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, which talked about the fact that there's been um, the pandemic has had has dramatically impacted health seeking behaviours across England. So people should go and check out what that says. Um, okay. And you may see some of that in the press as well. Thank you. OK, thank you very much. Well, finally, then it is World Antibiotic Awareness Week. What actions can people take this week and going forward, do you think? Just a couple of priorities for me, please. I will start on this, if I may, Martin. I've um, mm -hmm. been working very closely with, with Professor Ashiro Oridopi on uh, what will hopefully be a letter that's um, issued to leaders in healthcare systems all across England, both primary care and secondary care. And it will focus attention on some, um, some general principles about antimicrobial um, prescribing and resistance, but um, also about practical steps that senior leaders can take. And Mariam earlier made a very important point about how how it's essential to, to achieve engagement with senior leaders in healthcare organizations. And in England this year, we now have the, the beginnings of integrated care systems and oversight from integrated care boards. Um, and these boards will be looking at 
care provided both in primary and secondary care. And we would we want to make sure that antimicrobial resistance and antimicrobial stewardship and infection prevention and control are on the firmly on the agenda of these board meetings. So this letter is is co-signed by um, senior leaders both in NHS England and in UKHSA, including the National Medical Director, the Chief Pharmaceutical Officer, Chief Dental Officer, Chief Scientist, and the Chief Medical Advisor in UKHSA. And, and the letter contains a number of pragmatic um, steps that, that senior leaders can take. Without going through them in, in a lot of detail, I would um, perhaps single out infection prevention and control, that we have a, a new national infection prevention control manual for England, and we're encouraging senior leaders to be aware of that and to check that it's being implemented in their organizations. We're encouraging them to, for many of these points, it's about being aware of their own data, their own performance, how their organization is doing. Um, another important element is diagnostics and, and um, the blood culture pathway. Are senior leaders aware of how their organization performs in terms of taking blood cultures, making sure that the blood cultures are, the blood tubes are filled appropriately and transported to the lab promptly? Mm. Do senior leaders know how well their organization is performing and what work is ongoing if any improvement is needed? I'll, I'll hand over to Diane. Maybe you'd like to, to add some points about the letter and other activities, of course, going on. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, so um, for, for the week, we have the National um, World Antimicrobial Awareness Week Toolkit, which has been published and is available on .gov. And we encourage colleagues to have a look at that because there are a range of digital resources which have been developed through a subgroup, which includes frontline clinicians, which is really important for us. That whilst mm -hmm. we lead the national, um, the national planning group, that we work with frontline clinicians in developing these resources. And we're grateful um, for, for the subgroup for all their work that they've done on that. So we'll encourage colleagues to use that. Within those digital toolkits and um, resources, um, are a range of social media messages. So I'm gonna talk about just very simple things that people can do. Um, social media messages that colleagues can use on any social media platform and actually and let's not forget that that includes the whatsapp groups for organizations telegram groups um and if you're posting on uh, on the usual social media using the hashtag hashtag keep antibiotics working and hashtag antibiotic guardian mm. we also encourage people to choose the antibiotic guardian pledge and encourage their colleagues family members and friends to do the same and that they should register their activities that, on the registration form on Antibiotic Guardian. Um, NHS Futures website has a really a range of um, national guidance updates and a really good resource that colleagues across the NHS can use to access a whole range of things, including our evidence observatory, which we collaborate with the um, um, NHS colleagues on the stewardship leads on. Um, yeah, so th th those are just some very simple things that colleagues can do. Um, everyone can take an action. Um, and then there's a longer term and, you know, critical activities, which um, Kieran has already mentioned. Thank you. Okay. OK, well, thanks very much indeed. It's been fascinating. You've all done a great job of selling your areas of interest. And it's very obvious that you're all very passionate about this as well, because you all want to talk about it a lot. So this could have gone on a lot longer, but you have the webinar this week that we will highlight and we will post the links to many of the resources that you mentioned on the podcast website so that colleagues around the world can access these useful resources that will probably be quite transposable to other settings as well. So it only reminds me to thank you all very much for joining us. It's been fascinating and I'd love to hear the passion in your voices. 
because it's you know it's it's really going to be very critical going forward especially the importance of infection prevention because if you have no cure preventing it is likely to be quite useful but thanks very much for joining me i really appreciate your time and i hope everybody reads and enjoys the report thank you martin thanks Michael. thank you and here's to next year's one <laughs>